0: Well, this morning, um, I need to start with a confession. Uh, I have an addiction. My addiction is buying books. I, I can't say my addiction is books, because the problem is, I hear about a new book, I get really excited about it, I think it will actually help me out a lot in life, so I buy it, and then it just goes on the stack of the other books that I have bought and never actually read I mean, this, this is the problem. I, I, I need an intervention, all right? Anyone else have the same problem? Okay, thank you. I'm not alone. Yes, we'll start a recovery group after this. Uh, but if you haven't noticed, we in America are addicted to new. Whether it be new books or new movies, new music, new experiences, new cars, new clothes, new anything, we are addicted to new. Now, I realize there might be some of you here today who are going to push back a little bit, going, no, Aaron, you don't understand. I, I prefer not new. And, and I get it. Like, you go to the restaurant that you've been to 300 times, and you order the same meal every time. Right? I know, you're still listening to the same album from high school. right? You, you, I, I get it. You're a traditionalist. You don't like new things. You, you hate change. I, I get that. But I believe that the majority of Americans, our culture, loves new. Because somehow we've bought into the lie that new equals better. As a pastor, I have encountered countless people who have bought into this idea that new equals better. They, they think that by getting a new diet or getting a, a new set of clothes or, or getting whatever, that it's going to change their life. I've known young adult guys that will graduate college, get their first job, and with the new salary, that's like more than minimum wage, they will go out and lease a new car. And you can just see the way they act and behave, that they think that the new job and the new car makes them better. I've known some women who buy a new cute outfit, and they think that that new outfit somehow makes them better. But this is the equivalent of putting stickers on the outside of your laptop computer, thinking that it will make it faster. It might change the outside, but it's no different on the inside. It isn't actually better. Well, the same thing happens in the spiritual realm. There are people who will adopt new things, whether it be a new church or maybe a new schedule, adopting new spiritual practices into that schedule. For some, it's actually a new religion or maybe just some new set of rules. And they begin to do these new things, hoping to have now a new relationship with the divine. But again, it's like stickers on a laptop. It's like adding new paint to a dead car. Unless you actually get on the inside, you haven't really changed anything. You see, if you're going to have the kind of change you want in your life, it isn't going to be something on the outside, You're not going to find what you're really looking for through new car, new clothes, new relationships. What you're going to need is a new heart, a new spirit, a new identity. Today, as we dig into Jeremiah, we're going to look at what is it that we need to really experience new. And we're going to discover it's not something on the outside. It's something on the inside. Would you join me in prayer? So, Father God, as we come now to the scriptures, would you speak powerfully to us? Would you help each and every one of us, no matter where we are at in our spiritual journey, to see Jesus and to see this new heart that you want to give us, the the deep work you want to do in us, because I believe you want to do a great work then through us. So I just pray you'd help us right now. To, to just set down our defenses, to be open to your Holy Spirit, that our minds and our hearts are ready to hear from you, that this would go beyond what I want to say, what I've prepared to say, and this would go to what you want to say to the people that you've gathered here to, today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you've got a Bible with you, whether it's a a digital copy on your phone or a paper copy, would you open up to Jeremiah chapter 31? Jeremiah 31. If you're not quite sure where Jeremiah is, I've got a little cheat sheet up on the screen for you. Feel free to use that. Um, I'm just going to let you know. I'm going to put Jeremiah 31 in context. Uh, Those of you who are part of our church family know that I often do this. But today, rather than just like help you understand where Jeremiah is at, I'm going to help you understand where it's in the entire arc of the Bible. All right, So we will get to Jeremiah 31 eventually. I'm just giving you the heads up. It's going to be a little bit before we get there. So you have plenty of time to find it. We've been looking uh, in this His Story series, looking how all of the scriptures point to Jesus. And a concept that has come up a couple of times throughout this series is the idea of a covenant. Uh, A covenant is a binding formal agreement between two parties. That they're agreeing to uphold some sort of contract with one another. They usually have obligations that they each say that they will fulfill to maintain this union. Uh, marriage is a perfect example. The husband and the wife are agreeing to you know, do certain things and, and not do certain things in order to keep this union. But a covenant isn't always just between two equals like husband and wife. Sometimes it could happen between a greater power and a lesser power like a king with a servant or, as we've been seeing. With God and humans. We've already seen in this His story series a couple of covenants that God made with mankind. The first one was in Genesis 8 and 9, as we looked at the story of Noah. God made a covenant with Noah, and really, he made it with the earth when he said, I will hang my rainbow in the sky, promising never to again flood the entire earth. Then in Genesis 15, we saw God make a covenant with Abraham saying that he was going to create this incredible, huge nation from Abraham and eventually give them a certain area of land that they would reside and multiply, from which they would then be a blessing to the world. But the interesting thing about these covenants that God made with Noah and with Abraham is that they were one-sided. Like, Noah and Abraham didn't have to do anything to uphold this covenant. God just basically said, I'll do it. And in the case of Abraham, there's even evidence that God even says, even if you, Abraham, break your side of this covenant, I'll take the punishment. It was a very one-sided covenant. But there was another covenant that we've looked at called the Sinai Covenant or the Mosaic Law. After God brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he led them into the wilderness. They went to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain and begins to receive the law. And in this, God is saying, I'm going to establish a covenant. But unlike the Abraham Covenant, And the Noah covenant, this one was not one-sided. This one was going to be two-sided. God was going to do certain things on his end, but he expected Israel to do things on their end. In other words, he's giving this law, and he expected them to obey it. And if they did, if their hearts were following after God, then God would bless them with great harvests, uh, with long life, with peace. They could conquer their enemies. God would be with them. But... If they didn't follow God, if they began to turn away, then God was going to allow disasters to come, bad harvests bad weather. They, they wouldn't have peace. Disease would come in. God would try to use these things to call them back to repentance. And guess what? Israel didn't obey. They, now, they, they followed the covenant for, for a while, but they were like a spiritual pendulum. They would swing back and forth and they would swing far away from God, then some of these things would happen. God would uphold his end of the covenant, and they would end up swinging back and begin to follow God again. But it's interesting to note that so often when the pendulum swung back towards God, they would say yes to following uh, the Lord. It was a lot of outward change. They, they would you know, wear the right things. They would do the certain customs and the right things, but their hearts were still far from God. And then they would swing right back the other way. And when they would swing back, God would send prophets to warn them. And that's where we come to Jeremiah. Jeremiah appears on the scene right as Israel is on one of these big swings away from the Lord. And poor Jeremiah, he has the unfortunate role of prophesying doom and gloom. All right? He wasn't very popular at all. But he's trying to warn them. And he unfortunately had to see his prophecies come true. I want you to see a couple of examples. The first one is in Jeremiah chapter 2. It's verse 13. God says to Jeremiah, to the Israelites, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. A cistern was a big hole that you would dig into the ground. You'd cover it with clay, and the water would collect in there, and you'd put this water in there. By being deep down, it would often be really, really cool, and it would store it. But if your clay got cracks in it, the water would slowly leak out, and then you'd come along to a cistern, go in to get water, and there'd be nothing there. God was saying to the Israelites that you have turned away from me the fountain. Of living water, a fountain that just continues to flow abundantly. There's always water. And instead, you've rejected me and you go and you'll dig your own cisterns, thinking somehow these will satisfy you, but they're cracked. The water can't stay. And you turn to these other gods, you turn to these other things, you turn to your stuff, you turn to your relationships, and you get nothing. So God is showing them that they were rejecting the covenant. But God loved Israel deeply love them a a ton more than we realize you you can hear this especially in chapter 3 verses 12 and 13 return faithless israel declares the lord i will not look on you in anger for i am merciful declares the lord i will not be angry forever only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the lord your god and you scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice declares the lord This pendulum had swung over and he's trying to woo them back. Guys, I'm merciful. I love you. I won't remain angry forever. Just come back. Repent. Confess. I welcome you with open arms. But Israel was so far swung over that they rejected it. Look at chapter four, uh, verse six and seven. God says, raise a standard toward Zion. Flee for safety. Stay not. For I bring disaster from the north. In great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. And it came true. A nation named Babylon came from the north and absolutely decimated Israel so badly that they actually took away the people, took them into exile back to Babylon and began to try to erase the Israelite culture and the Israelite God. This is why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Jeremiah had to unfortunately not only see his people reject the warnings, but he saw them carted off. And Jeremiah was one of the handful that were left behind. <laughs> Could you imagine? You've been living in the city, bustling with people, all the farming activity, all the trade going on, And now it's empty. It's quiet. The the walls are knocked down. The buildings are in ruins. The people are gone. There's dead carcasses everywhere. And it's just you and a few living people left. But after God takes the Israelites to Babylon, he continues to speak to them through Jeremiah. Jeremiah begins to write letters to the Israelites and send them to Babylon And it's remarkable to read the letters. Because here is Jeremiah, very unpopular in his day, constantly prophesying, disaster's coming. And now suddenly his tune changes. He starts sending letters. And these letters continue, contain words of hope. And that's where we find Jeremiah chapter 31. So look with me. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. No matter where you are at in your spiritual journey, I think there are three things in this passage that can help you today, this week, in this life to, to grow spiritually. And, and it comes with this idea of a new covenant. There's three things about this new covenant I notice. First is that this new covenant is different. This new covenant, the true new, is different. Look at verse uh, 32 with me. You notice that he says that this new covenant will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declared the Lord. When God brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness, they went to Mount Sinai where God began to give the law, this new covenant to the people. But this covenant, they couldn't uphold. They couldn't maintain it. And so God is saying this new covenant It's going to be different. It's not just like taking the terms and conditions and tweaking it a little bit, you know, so that therefore you can continue to use the software. No, this is going to be absolutely new. It's it's not just some, you know, like copy and paste from another religion. It's not like God went, whoa, I guess I made it a little too difficult. You know, we'll make it easier. You know what? This religion, they seem to be a little easier. We'll just grab that one and we'll give this one to the Jews. No, this one was going to be from scratch. It was going to be entirely different, remember years ago when uh, I was the uh, worship pastor at a church plant in Colorado, we had a gentleman, well, a, a couple show up at our church. That's about, a, I think, a year, maybe two years into our church plant, and this couple shows up at, uh, to our church, and they seemed to like it, which was amazing. We were really, really small meeting in an elementary school, and they came back another week, and then they came back a third time. And after that third time, the guy approached our pastor and said, I'm an early riser. It drives me nuts to just sit at home and wait for church at 10. Like, I've already had my breakfast, my coffee, I've read the entire newspaper, and it's like only 6.30. Could I come and help with setup? Well, as a brand new church, you don't turn offers down like that. Of course you can come and set up. So the very next week, this guy shows up and starts helping us set up uh, on Sunday morning. So the pastor and him are setting up chairs one day, and the pastor wants to kind of get to know him, so he just starts asking him questions. You You know, where are you from? How'd you and your wife meet? And in the course of the conversation, it turns out that for the wife, this was her second marriage, but for the husband, this was his fourth marriage. Now, that's not a story you hear every single day. And we wanted to be at the type of church that was a church of grace, and we could love and welcome. We wanted people to find Jesus and follow him. And so we just rolled with it. Okay, fourth marriage for him, second for her. We want to just help them connect in their marriage with Jesus. About two months later, the guy shows up at church by himself. He asks our pastor if they could get together. The pastor, of course, says yes. And so they got together that week. And he says, we're having marital difficulties. And my pastor starts asking a few questions. And the guy basically said, I don't understand. She's starting to act just like all of my ex-wives. You know, sometimes we think that if we get a new job, we move to a new city, we get a new wife, everything will be different. It'll be a lot better. And then we're really, really surprised when we get the new job or we go to the new city or we get the new relationship. And the problems just continue to persist. Because see, what we're doing is we're changing all the outward things, but we haven't had the true change inside. This guy could not see that the continuing, consistent factor in each of his marriages was him. And until he became different, I don't think any marriage was going to be different for him. You can't buy into the lie that new is better until you start realizing that if you want to see everything else around you change, the change has to first start here. It's got to be absolutely different than before. So not only do we see that the true new is different, we also see in this passage that the true new is internal. The true new is internal. Look at verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Unlike the Sinai covenant, which was written on stone, when Moses descended down that mountain, he's holding stone tablets which God began to write, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the covenant. Uh, unlike... Something written down on papyrus or a scroll that they could unroll and read to the people. This one was going to be written on their heart. It was going to be in them, a part of them. And that would fundamentally change their relationship with God. And it would fundamentally change their identity. I think most of us in this room have heard stories of you know, some musician or actor who, when they first began in the industry, was really, really sweet, really nice. They worked really, really hard, and then they finally hit it big. You know, that album that, that went, you know, huge. They, they got in that major motion picture, and suddenly everyone wanted their attention, and it affected them. They, they began to change. And suddenly, they were no longer the super sweet person as before. They they began to be really demanding. And and all the friends they used to have ended up getting pushed out. And they started getting all these other friends who just wanted to take advantage of them. And so they start pushing them away. And and we've heard the stories of how it just continues to get worse and worse and worse. And we wonder, how could it happen? It's because their identity changed. They no longer saw themselves as the musician or the actor, getting going, fresh-faced, eager, hungry, willing to do whatever They now began to see their identity as famous, rich, deserving. Now suddenly instead of, oh yeah, whatever you want, I'll work really hard for it, they began to take a posture of, no, I deserve it and you have to work hard for me. You see, if you truly want to have change, it isn't going to just be the new diet or the new wardrobe or the new car. It's got to be internal you got to stop sticking, putting stickers on your laptop. you got to open it up and allow God to get in there and absolutely change the operating system, the RAM. Let him get in and change you from the inside. And when you have the inside change, now it affects the outside, which is what you were going after all along. To experience the true new, it's got to be different, but it also has to be internal. But There's one more thing we see in this passage. And it's that the true new is Jesus. The true new is Jesus. Look at the very last phrase of verse 34. God says, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Think about that for a second. The Jews up to that time have been operating on the Sinai Covenant where they are told that for certain sins they have to come and bring certain offerings. They, they have to, you know, burnt offerings or, or sin offerings, animals that would be sacrificed. Like this was the system. This is how sin is forgiven. And suddenly God is saying, no, 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 no. And this new covenant, it's going to be different. It's going to be internal. And it's going to be for the forgiveness of your sin. Your iniquity will be forgiven. It, it, was, it was mind-blowing. It was bewildering. I think some of them probably stopped and went, what? There was a guy named Peter who had a what moment we know him as the Apostle Peter. He was one of Jesus's most famous disciples. Famous mostly because he just had a gift of gab. He couldn't help himself. He would speak before he would think. And he was very opinionated. And there were moments where he wasn't even afraid to share that opinion, even with Jesus. Like, I don't know that I would have the audacity to go up to Jesus and say, no, 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 I'm sorry, you're wrong. Peter did. But despite Peter's ability to open his mouth and insert his foot, Jesus decided to make Peter in charge after Jesus would ascend to heaven. Peter kind of became the de facto leader for the disciples. And so that's why we see Peter in chapter 2 of the book of Acts being the one standing up to preach to the masses. And 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus in one day. It's in chapter 4 that we see Peter get arrested, and he's the one who boldly proclaims before these Jewish leaders who have all the schooling in the world, and he's just a fisherman, and yet he's telling them about Jesus. But he has a wow moment in chapter 10 of Acts. There's a story where he's up on top of a roof. They're making supper down below, and he falls asleep. And he suddenly has this really crazy dream And not only does he have a crazy dream, the same dream happens three times. And when he wakes, he starts realizing, God was trying to communicate something to me. And it starts to dawn on him that through the dream, God was saying that salvation through Jesus was not for the Jews alone. It was also for non-Jews, for Gentiles. That was like, whoa, this, this is different. And Peter's still reeling on it. He's thinking about it. When suddenly at the door, show up a bunch of guys saying, hey, We've been sent here by a Roman centurion named Cornelius looking for some guy named Peter. Is he here? Peter ends up going with them back to Cornelius' house. And you've got to understand, a Jew under Jewish custom would never go into the home of a Gentile. But because of the dream on the roof, Peter realizes, God is sending me to Cornelius. So he walks in and Cornelius has gathered all of his family. He's got a bunch of his servants there. They are there to hear from Peter. So what's Peter going to talk about? He's going to talk about Jesus. And as he's preaching this sermon to them, he wraps it up by saying this. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. To him, to to Jesus, all the prophets, including Jeremiah, bear witness that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sin through his name. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah didn't know it, but he was saying the true new is Jesus. And Peter realizes it's true. And it wasn't just for Jews. It was for all people, including you. This is why the Apostle Paul, when he wrote a letter to a church in the city of Colossae, said this, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. God, he, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The true new is Jesus. It is in Jesus that our sins are forgiven. It's when we place our faith in Jesus that God sends his Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to write this new covenant on our heart. If you're a follower of Jesus, have you ever had a moment when you just know what you're about to do is sin? That's the new covenant. That's the Holy Spirit. It's written right there on your heart, on your conscience. You know. And it's God not having to speak through a prophet. It's God speaking directly to you. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the new covenant. If you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus yet, I just want to extend an invitation to place your faith in Jesus. To allow God to do a change in you that you wouldn't make your life about these outward things, thinking that if you had a new job, or you got new clothes, or you had a new car, you got a new house, or you had another child, or you got a new relationship, that somehow this is going to make your life all better. I don't want you putting stickers on your laptop. I invite you to let God open you up and install a brand new operating system. Let him put his Holy Spirit in you and upon you. And when that happens... Everything changes from a spiritual standpoint. You you go from being dead in your sin to alive in Christ. You go from being separated from God to now being an adopted son or daughter of the Most High God. I mean, everything absolutely changes from a a spiritual standpoint. And what God wants to do in you is to bless the world. But for him to do that sort of change, it means he's got to do a deep work in you first. So that's why I invite you today to say yes to Jesus, to let in the true new. Many of you are here today and you're already a follower of Jesus. But Maybe you've been slipping back. You feel like you're on that pendulum. And instead of being close to God, you feel kind of far from him. I want you to get off the pendulum swing. Stop trying to adopt the outward things. Just come back to the gospel. Let Jesus be your identity. Let him be the center of who you are. God tells us repeatedly throughout the scriptures that when you place your faith in Christ, he embeds his Holy Spirit within you. He dwells within you. You are sealed. So rather than go and try and make a bunch of outward changes, go back to the inside. Go back to the gospel and just ask the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you and change you It's a day-by-day thing. It's repeated. Recruit others to help you, to encourage you. Find ways to get into the scriptures that remind you of these truths. Find ways to pray and to sing and to to praise God and connect with him. But remember, it's not the outward things that are going to bring the change. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. He is the new covenant. And also, let yourself just be blown away. This is written several hundred years before Jesus ever hung on a cross. God planned all of this for you. So stop fighting against this God who loves you. Instead, surrender. Allow him to take you apart so he can remake you into the image of Jesus. Some days it's going to feel wonderful. To realize that you have the presence of the living God with you at all times. At other times, it's going to be painful. I don't know what it would feel like to have someone writing on my heart. Sometimes I think it's probably not very comfortable. Because I think in that moment, what God is doing is he's chiseling away that which does not look like Jesus. So that the image of Christ can come through. If that's you, would you just surrender today? to aid us in our surrender, if you will. We're going to open up the communion tables. If you are a follower of Jesus, I invite you, come to the table. Because it's as we take that bread, we remember that Christ's body was broken for us. And when we pick up that cup, we drink it and realize it's for the forgiveness of our sins. And when Jesus sat with his disciples at that last supper, passing these elements to them, he said, he said, This is a new covenant. So I invite you to come. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, and you're not ready to accept the invitation that I've given you, I'm just going to politely ask that you not go to these elements. I'm going to invite you to, to pray. You can sing these couple of songs with us. I want you to deal with God, though. I want you to let him in. That's far more important than going and consuming these elements. But if you are a follower of Jesus, even if this is your first time with us, I want you to come. I want you to partake. Because this reminds us of the new covenant which was established for us. And as we pray, as we sing, I want us to remember this is an inward thing. That it has to be different. It has to be internal. It has to be Jesus. So, Father, as we come to these elements, I pray that you would be glorified. Lord, I pray for that inward change for me and my entire church family. I pray that we would be people where you are our God, we are your children. There is a unity that exists, and that we would experience the joy of that. I just pray for anyone in my church family that is struggling right now, whether it be with sin or doubts or, or, or questions or something else, that instead of trying to just change things on the outside, they'd be running to you. He would let you change them from the inside out. And as you do that deep work in them, they would experience the joy of seeing you do a great work through them. God, I pray for anyone here today that has never placed their faith in you. That today would be the day of rebirth. That today would be the day where they let you in. They stop trying to do the outward thing and they instead let you come and do an inward work. And that would be the change that they've been looking for their entire life. God, the the journey ahead for them won't be just easy. There will be moments of difficulty. And I pray that in those moments, they would run to you and turn to you like they are right now. God, I pray you'd hear their prayer. I pray you'd hear their confession. I pray that they would have a sense of rebirth. That you are with them and you are changing them. And that today is the start of a brand new journey. God, in these next moments of singing, of prayer, of partaking of the communion elements, may you be glorified as we worship you, as we return to you, and realize that it is through you that we have forgiveness of sin. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.